Well, to be nearsighted, to be nearsighted is to be able to see objects that are closer to you, nearer to you than those farther away. As I've gotten older, I have become nearsighted. So if I really want to see stuff far away, I need glasses. Uh, well, the, the truth is that we use that term nearsighted or, or maybe farsighted to talk about more than our physical vision. Uh, we've come to use that term nearsighted to describe much more than just our physical vision. Uh, for instance, we can be nearsighted about our lives, uh, about the future. Uh, we often call this being short-sighted. That's why the title of this sermon is Don't Be Short-Sighted. Uh, we are short-sighted when we focus on what is close to us, what is near in the future, rather than on what is far away. Uh, so business schools, if you were to go to, to a university and go to business school, you might be warned about being short-sighted as a, as a manager of a business. Uh, a business that is focused on making as much money as possible in the short term well, they might end up harming themselves in the long term. For instance, a company that makes poor quality products because they use the cheapest materials they can, well, they make, may make more money in the short term because they keep their costs very low. But because their product quality is also very low, the customers will likely not buy from them again. I mean, kids, how many times have you been upset when some toy that you bought or that your parents bought broke after two or three days? Parents, how likely are you to buy a toy or a product from that company again? Well, probably not very likely. It can be bad to be short-sighted, to be focused on what is immediately in front of us. Well, the truth is that we can be short-sighted in our spiritual lives as well. We can be short-sighted about our eternal future. We are tempted to live for today, prioritizing our own comfort and our, our own pleasure in this life above all else. We tell ourselves, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, brothers and sisters, in our verses for this morning, Jesus calls us to something different. He calls you to live not just for today, but to live for eternity. And he does this by really examining the topic of money or, or riches. Now, why is that Jesus' focus when he's calling us to live not just for today, but for eternity? Well, it's perhaps because the greatest sign of what you are living for is your attitude towards money. And so Jesus calls you this morning to value eternal riches. What is laid up for you in heaven, far more than you value the things of this earth. So the main idea of these verses, and therefore this sermon, is future reward is promised to the presently faithful. Future reward is promised to the presently faithful. And we're going to see that idea in Luke chapter 16 this morning, so I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. You can also find the, the text of Luke chapter 16 in the, the back of your bulletin. I have three points to help us walk through this passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, the first is faithful stewardship. Faithful stewardship. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 13. The second is faithful to the Word. Faithful to God's Word. We'll see that in verses 14 through 18. And then finally, faithful to the end. Faithful to the end. That's going to be in verses 19 through 31. So first, faithful stewardship. Please follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. Now he, being Jesus, said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I am removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. 
Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, the parable that that Jesus tells in these verses is a bit confusing at first glance, because this dishonest or this scheming manager seems to be held up as something of an example, a positive example. Well, what is going on? What is Jesus' point here? Is Jesus commending dishonesty? Is he praising this, this manager's dishonest and unrighteous actions? Before I answer that question, let me just say a brief word about how we should interpret the Bible's parables. Now, parables are are often called earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. They're a, a figure of speech that Jesus often uses in which a comparison is being made in order to, to make a spiritual point. Now, the, the details of a parable may be important, but many of the details we find embedded within a parable are simply there because they're needed to make for an understandable and cohesive story. So when you come to a parable in the Bible, you should be careful about making too much out of each and every detail that you find within the story. It's generally or usually in the, the overall story, the, the overall parable in which the spiritual truth is to be found. Uh, so the, the famous reformer Martin Luther said this, parables are never spoken for the purpose of being interpreted in all their minutiae. In other words, in each and every little detail. And therefore, when interpreting a parable, we should confine ourselves to the leading thought, that which Christ designs to teach by it. Well, so then, what is the the leading point or the main point Jesus is seeking to convey here in this parable about the dishonest manager? Well, it was not to praise dishonesty. I mean, even this this manager's master in this parable called the manager unrighteous in verse 8. The manager was not praised for his unrighteousness or his dishonesty. Instead, he was praised for his shrewdness, his cunning. Jesus' main point was that this unrighteous manager used his worldly wealth, actually his master's wealth, He used what he had on this earth, his position and his his influence, the management of his master's money to secure his earthly future. Well, therefore, Christian, how much more should you use your earthly resources to secure your eternal future? That's Jesus's point. If this unrighteous manager used worldly wealth to secure his earthly future, Well, Christian, how much more should you use what the Lord has given you on this earth to secure your eternal future? That's Jesus' point. As manager in the parable, he he was a bad manager. He was wasteful of his master's resources, and so he was going to be fired. Therefore, this manager wondered, well, how am I going to provide for myself in the future? What am I going to do? He's like, I can't dig. I'm not strong enough. Small guy. I'm too proud to go out on the streets and beg, so how am I going to eat? How am I going to feed myself in the future? Well, his solution was to win the favor of all his master's debtors, all who owed his master money. Uh, he seemed to be, have, have the, the legal authority to enact contracts on behalf of his, his master. And so he invited all his debtors in, he tore up their old contracts, and he wrote them better terms. He said, oh, you who owed 100, and now you only owe 50. 
You who owed 100, now you only owe 80. Something like when the UAE discounts traffic fines or forgives overstay fines. He was writing new contracts with better terms. Well, why did this manager do this? Why? It's because he wanted his master's debtors to feel like they owed him a favor. They knew what was going on. He wanted them to be in his debt. He was confident that those he, those he helped, they would feel duty-bound to welcome him into their homes as a guest in the future. They would feel obligated to maybe give him a place to sleep, to, to maybe feed him and care for him when he needed it. No, his future would be secure. Well, that's the point that Jesus draws out in verses 8 and 9 of our text. Jesus says that the children of this age, and that's talking about unbelievers, those who do not know the Lord, the children of this age are cunning. They're willing to lie and, and steal and cheat to secure their earthly comfort, to get ahead in this life. The children of this age are willing to do whatever they can to, to get ahead. And Jesus' point is if unbelievers will go to those links to secure their earthly future. Well, Christian, how much more should you use your earthly resources to secure your eternal future, to make eternal friends, as Jesus puts it? It's not entirely clear what these eternal friends are that are going to invite people into eternal dwellings. It may be just a poetic way of, of speaking about God in this parable. But that's what Jesus is talking about. How can we make eternal friends? How can we secure our eternal future? Well, it is those who are wise and faithful and righteous stewards of what the Lord has given them on earth who will be welcomed into the eternal kingdom of God. So we kind of find the overarching principle that Jesus is teaching here in, in verse 10. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. Well, there's certainly an earthly application to that principle, is there not? Well, children, teenagers, if you are faithful with the small freedoms and privileges that your parents give you, they're likely going to trust you with more you'll get greater responsibilities and privileges from your parents as you prove yourself faithful with the little you're given. Friends, if you are not faithful with the small responsibilities that you are given at, at work, your manager can't trust you to complete small tasks, you're likely never going to be promoted. You're likely never going to get greater responsibility at work. I can't remember when I first heard this story, but I was... I once heard the story of a, of a man who was interviewing for a high-level executive position at a company, a high-management position. Uh, the interview went, went very well. He spent all day interviewing. The company was ready to offer him the job. However, the, the last step of the interview was to take this man out for lunch, to, to continue the conversation uh, over lunch. Well, the company ended up uh, going out. They, they took the man to one of those restaurants where you go through a buffet line, you put the food that you want on your tray, and then you pay at the end of the, the buffet. Well, those who were interviewing this man noticed that as he was going through the buffet line, he took a couple small things, a couple small packets of butter, and he tucked them under his plate so that the cashier would not see them when he, he checked out, that he would not have to pay for these things. Well, he did not get the job. The company that was interviewing him knew that if he was willing to be dishonest over something so small as a pack of butter, that he would be dishonest over things much larger. They were not going to entrust the resources of their company to a man like that. So there is, is certainly an earthly application to what Jesus is teaching here. But Jesus ultimately doesn't have this earth in view. He ultimately has eternity in view. And when Jesus talks about being faithful with little, he's talking about the little that we have on earth. Well, friends, no matter how much you have on earth, whether you're, you're poor 
or whether you're very rich, it is very little as compared with eternal riches. It is very little as compared to the treasures that are laid up in heaven. And so Jesus' point was that if you are not faithful to steward, to faithfully steward what you have been given on earth, your money primarily, but I think we also see application to your time, your talents, your resources, your relationships, the truths of the gospel. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. Well, if you're not faithful to steward the little that you have been given on earth, why would you, be, why would you then expect to be entrusted with eternal riches? Why would you expect to be entrusted with heavenly reward if you have not been faithful to steward the little that you have been given on earth? That's the point that Jesus is making. Well, look at verses 11 and 12. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? In other words, if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, with what you have been given here on this earth, why do you expect that God will entrust you with a heavenly inheritance? Well, friends, on the flip side, what an encouragement that is to be faithful with the little that you have been given. If you are faithful with the little that you have been given, you will be entrusted with much. You will receive a heavenly inheritance. And what an encouragement to faithful stewardship that is. And notice that the worldly wealth, what you have here on this earth, it does not belong to you. A church, everything that you have in this life, everything that you have in this life, whether money or anything else, is simply on loan from God. It is not yours. It is on loan from God. And the Lord has given you what you have as a temporary loan to test your faithfulness. The temporary loan to test your faithfulness. And so friends, do not be short-sighted with what you have been given. Do not be short-sighted with what you have been given. Your stewardship of your earthly resources, your stewardship of your money matters. Your righteousness matters. Friends, you are not saved by how you use your money. You're like really good at investing money, and if you're really generous, that does not bring salvation. But the stewardship of what you have been given matters because it reveals what is in your heart. It reveals that which you love. So this is how one Bible scholar put it. He wrote, We show whom we serve by how we spend our money. We show whom we love and hate by how we spend our money. We serve money if we live to make money. We serve money if we live for material things. We serve money if we dream about the comforts of this world that money can bring. But we serve God if we use our money to please him. God knows the motives of our hearts and will judge us all on the last day. Well, friends, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. How you use what the Lord has given you reveals what or who you truly serve. Your money can be a tool for Christ. It can be a tool for his glory. Or it can be wasted. Now, brothers and sisters, what would your stewardship of what the Lord has given you reveal? Are you being short-sighted, simply living for today? Or are you living for eternity? Well, friends, there's a, there's a number of the ways that the, that the Bible holds out, that Jesus holds out for us, with how we can be faithful with the little that we have been given here on earth. Well, the Lord calls us to faithfully give to the local church. You can be faithful with what you have been given to not just give to the church, but give to other good gospel work. Missionaries, those who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
You can be faithful with little by being generous and hospitable to those in need. By being generous and hospitable to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now friends, it's, a, it's an encouragement uh, a couple of times a month to, to see so many of you bring food to share with one another as we have one of our many potlucks over at uh, Emmanuel Villa. And what a great way to be generous to others. What a great way to contribute to the, the life of the church. A great example of generosity. But just as you are doing, do even more. Seek to be faithful with the little that the Lord has given you on this earth. Use what God has given you for the good of others and the glory of God. Not just for your own comfort. Not just for your own pleasure. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-7. through 7. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Well, those who are faithful with what they have been given on earth, who sow generously, will reap eternal reward. You're not promised earthly riches just because you're generous with the little you've been given. But you do have the hope of eternal reward. So that's the, the first point of the this, this sermon, faithful stewardship. We're now going to turn our attention to verses 14 through 18. Faithful to the word. So please follow along with me starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money... We're listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Well, since we cannot love both God and money, we cannot serve both God and money, it is very obvious what Luke means when he calls the Pharisees lovers of money. They were a people who did not love God. When Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. In other words, they sought the praise of people and they received that, but they had the fullness of their reward in the praise of people. Friends, do you realize what a devastating judgment that is to receive all your reward now? To receive all your comfort during your life on earth? To receive everything that you will ever get that is good during the few years of existence that you have on earth? And nothing in the life to come. Uh, friends, you do not want to have the fullness of your reward now. Oh, the, the seeming righteousness of the Pharisees was all just a big show. It was designed to draw the, the praise and attention of, of other people rather than to please God. But Jesus' warning to them was that God had a spiritual x-ray machine or something of a spiritual MRI he saw and he knew the motives of their hearts. Just as he sees and he knows the motives of your hearts as well. Jesus warned them what they, what they valued was not what he valued. God's value system and the world's value system are like oil and water. They simply do not mix. What the world esteems, what is highly admired by people, is revolting in the sight of God. 
So brothers and sisters, what is it that you value? In many countries, and perhaps many of the countries which you come from, and certainly the one I come from, politicians and large corporations are in a race to show the most support for the LGBTQ plus agenda. They're rushing to show their support for the, uh, the transgender revolution. Now, why is that? That's because they want the praise of man. They want to be elected. They want to be esteemed. They want to win customers. What is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Brothers and sisters, one of the costs of following Jesus is being willing to sacrifice the praise of man in order to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. It's not always required, but you must have a willingness to do it. It is to stand for biblical truth and biblical morality, even when it is not popular. Kids, it's to avoid immoral conversation and videos and messages with your friends and from your friends, even if they will make fun of you for refusing to participate. Friends, it is to get rid of certain cultural norms and traditions if they are opposed to Scripture. It is to admit when you are wrong and apologize instead of constantly defending and seeking to justify yourself. Do not be short-sighted. Do not seek to, to justify yourself before others. Do not seek the praise of man. Rather, to desire the justification, the forgiveness that comes from God. Well, the Pharisees' desire to justify themselves, the Pharisees' desire for the praise of man, helps explain why Jesus turned his attention to the law and the prophets, which is simply a reference to the entire Old Testament, the entirety of the scriptures that existed at that point. That's what is meant by the law and the prophets. So if you remember back to the beginning of Luke 15, which we studied a couple of weeks ago, the Pharisees were complaining about the fact that Jesus welcomed sinners and tax collectors. Like how could he spend so much time with these people who were at the bottom of society? Well, the Pharisees were legalists. They sought to be more outwardly righteous than everyone else. They thought this was the ticket into God's kingdom. Let me just be a better rule follower. Let me judge all those who don't follow the rules as well as I am. God's going to like me because, you know what, in comparison to others... I seem pretty good. They thought that was the ticket into the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus came on the scene and, and welcomed sinners, when he preached a, a message of, of grace and forgiveness, well, it undermined the Pharisees' entire religious system. And that was what the parable of the prodigal son was all about. The Pharisees could not rejoice in God's grace toward sinners because they, like the older brother, did not think of sinners as worthy of God's grace because they failed to see their own need for God's grace. God's grace undermined their beliefs about what made one righteous. They wanted righteousness through their own efforts instead of realizing that they needed righteousness through God's grace. They thought Jesus' message of grace was setting aside God's law. They thought he was ignoring all the law and the prophets. But Jesus made it clear that with his arrival, something new had come. As one scholar put it, the law and the prophets were in force until John the Baptist began to prophesy. The Old Testament scriptures continue to be the revelation of God and are authoritative as his word. They are not set aside. But believers in the new era live no longer under the old covenant, but under the new well, entrance into the kingdom of God is not through mere outward obedience, but by obedience that springs from the heart. The invitation into the kingdom of God is an invitation to repentance and faith in, in Jesus alone. Well, friends, that's how we obtain Jesus' righteousness. That's what we need, a righteousness that is not our own. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus made it clear that he was not setting aside or doing away with the Old Testament. Not even something as small as a comma 
or a period or an apostrophe would disappear from God's law. The word of our God will stand forever. No, instead Jesus was saying that the Old Testament found its fulfillment in him. The law and the prophets were were pointing to him all along. Friends, the, the reason that Christians do not follow all of the Old Testament law today is not because it has been done away with. It's because Jesus has fulfilled it. We no longer have to follow the cleanliness laws because it is Jesus who makes us clean. Spiritual cleanliness is a a matter of the heart. It does not come through outward ritual like washing our feet. It does not come through outward ritual like the things that we eat. No, we need a cleanliness that springs from the heart. We need new hearts. We do not follow the Old Testament sacrificial system because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that took away sin for all time. He fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. So Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for missing the fact that the Old Testament pointed to him and found its fulfillment in him. But perhaps most devastatingly, Jesus actually makes it clear that the Pharisees had not been faithful to the very law that they claimed to uphold. Uh, They were not as righteous as they would like to claim to be. They had not been faithful to keep the law on which they had set their hope for justification. I believe this explains why Jesus brought up the topic of divorce when he does. It seems to just be kind of a throw-in, like, where is this coming from? In the Old Testament law, and Deuteronomy 24 specifically, divorce was permitted. But the law said that a man could only divorce his wife if he found something indecent about her, likely referring to scandalous or indecent or immoral behavior including, but but probably not just limited to, adultery. Now, the Old Testament, the Bible, God's law, it did not encourage divorce, nor command divorce. In fact, in, in Malachi, it is said that God hates divorce. But in something of a concession to human sin, to regulate a sinful practice that was already taking place, divorce, The Old Testament did permit divorce in limited circumstances. It's managing an existing sinful practice. The the problem was that in Jesus' day, to quote one New Testament scholar, a majority of the Pharisees permitted divorce for the most trivial reasons, justifying it if a wife ruined a meal or if a husband found someone prettier. So, you know, messing up a meal, husband finding someone who he liked better, we can just throw all that into this category of indecent. So they would allow divorce for for virtually anything. They had twisted God's word beyond all recognition. In their minds, just about anything could serve as a basis for divorce. God hates divorce, but they were multiplying it. A divorce even among the Pharisees of that day had become something of a scandal because it was so widespread. Well, what was Jesus' word to them? Well, all you are doing is multiplying adultery. Because everyone who divorces his wife and then gets remarried commits adultery. You claim to be those who are righteous, but in reality you commit and encourage adultery. Your so-called righteousness is just a fraud. It was not Jesus who was unfaithful to the word of God. It was not Jesus who failed to uphold the Old Testament law. It was the Pharisees. Just like everyone else, they needed a righteousness that was not their own. They needed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be applied to them. And now, church, in light of Jesus' teaching, this is a difficult teaching on divorce and remarriage here. I want to to say just a couple of words on divorce and remarriage. So first, as we've already thought about, God hates divorce. But he does permit it in certain circumstances. Even in the New Testament, there is a concession to the hardness of human hearts. We do not have time to to think deeply about these, but in Matthew 19, Jesus does teach that, that divorce is permitted, not encouraged, 
not commanded, but permitted in cases of adultery, when one, one spouse is unfaithful to another. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul teaches that if one spouse abandons or deserts the other, has nothing to do with their spouse anymore, that's an allowable reason for divorce. Second, though, I believe the Bible teaches divorce is allowed in certain very limited circumstances. It is never ideal. God hates divorce. Even in the case of adultery, a married couple should be encouraged to pursue reconciliation with one another, to practice forgiveness towards one another, rather than get divorced. Marriage is to be a picture of Jesus in the church, and friends, Jesus never abandons his bride. Jesus never abandons his people. Friends, it is a sin to divorce because marriage is hard, or you're just not happy, or you don't feel quite as fulfilled as you were hoping to in your marriage. Or you just don't feel like you love your spouse anymore. Brothers and sisters, if you are right now in a difficult marriage, if you're struggling to get along with your, your spouse, friends, I, I think Jesus, I know Jesus is encouraging you to fight for your marriage, to work on your marriage, to pursue reconciliation in your marriage. Do not give up. Pursue forgiveness. Pursue reconciliation. And friends, if you have divorced for unbiblical reasons, or maybe if you were the one that was at fault in even what might be called a biblical divorce, in other words, if you were the one who committed adultery, if you were the one who abandoned a spouse, I want to speak to you for a moment. If that is you and you've also remarried, I want to speak to you for a moment. If you've married someone who is divorced for unbiblical reasons, I want to speak to you for a moment. Well, those acts, divorce and remarriage, were, were sins. The Bible is clear on that. We have it here in our verses from Luke. But I want you to know two things. Though it is a sin, first, it is not an ongoing sin. It is not that if you have been divorced and are now remarried, you are in a continual state of adultery, or you are in a continual state of sin. It does not mean that your, your current marriage is doomed or, or cursed. And you should certainly stay married to your current spouse and pursue faithfulness to them, to seek to, to love them well. That is what the Bible holds out to you. Even in Deuteronomy 24, it says if someone is to be divorced and remarried, they should not ever return to their former spouse. No, no, remain faithful to your current spouse. A second, divorce and remarriage are not unforgivable sins. Friends, Jesus' blood paid for those sins. His blood covers those sins. Jesus welcomes sinners into his kingdom. But you need to confess and repent of your past sin if you have not. Those who have been divorced and remarried are welcome into the kingdom of God if they repent of their sins and they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, those who are divorced and remarried are welcome into this church as well. And so friends, if, if you have any questions about any of that, if you have questions about Jesus's, I think, difficult teaching about divorce and remarriage, I just invite you to please come to talk to me or, or Pastor Ben after the service. You can come talk without shame or without judgment. Me, Pastor Ben, we're those who have received the grace of God. We, just like any other Christian on the face of the earth, are sinners who are in need of a Savior. We are those who God, who God sought and found. We are not commended by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, it was, it was Jesus who was faithful to the Word. That's why we must repent to place our faith in Jesus Christ, because it was He who was faithful to the Word, not us. We need His righteousness not our own. That brings us to the third and final point of the sermon, faithful to the end. 
Please follow along as I start reading in verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here, from, from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. My father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn, to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. My friends, these verses help us understand why we should live faithfully now. Why should you live with eternity in view? Friends, it's because faithfulness brings everlasting reward, while unfaithfulness brings eternal judgment. I mean, the parable that Jesus told in these verses gives a very vivid picture of what it looks like to be a Pharisee and to receive your reward in this life, and what it looks like to receive your reward instead in the life to come. The poor man, Lazarus, received virtually nothing in this life. He received no food, no medical care, and it seems that he received no compassion either. He went went through life hungry, weak and wounded, sick and sore. On the other hand, this rich man had everything he could want. He feasted on the, the finest of food. He dressed in fine clothes. But there was one thing at least that he lacked. He lacked compassion. Seemingly, he never lifted a finger in generosity to Lazarus, who sat at his gate, and he must have passed by time after time after time. He was not faithful with what the Lord had given him. Well, the day came when when both of their fortunes were instantly reversed. Lazarus went to his eternal reward. He went to the place of of comfort and plenty. While the, the rich man went to suffer in Hades. Another word for hell. It was a place of eternal torment. Uh, In his suffering, the rich man begged Abraham that Lazarus be allowed to to minister to him, to provide for him, to give him but a drop of water. Of course, this kind of compassion that he wanted from Lazarus then was the compassion that he refused to provide him in the time on earth. But look at verse 25. Abraham's word to the rich man was essentially, you received your reward, and therefore you will receive no eternal comfort. The rich man had failed to be faithful during his time on earth, and now it was too late. A gulf had been fixed between him and Lazarus, a wall that could not be crossed. On the other hand, Lazarus received the comfort that he did not receive in his life on earth. Well, friends, if you are a Christian, and only if you were a Christian, well, that should be a comfort to you if you're struggling and suffering now. Remain faithful, rest, reward, and comfort. They are coming. Friends, faithfulness to Jesus is worth it. Counting the cost is worth it. And now remember what Martin Luther said about parables. Parables are never spoken for the purpose of being interpreted in all their minutiae. So what you should not assume is that what we see in this parable is exactly what our eternal future is going to look like. This is not the clearest, the, the clear picture of exactly what eternity is going to look like. In other words, I don't think this means that people in hell are going to be able to, to see up into heaven and to talk to people in heaven or to talk to Father Abraham. Uh, faithful believers who die may not go precisely to Abraham's side. They may not be like sitting right next to him, though they will be with Abraham in paradise. We, we know that along with all the other faithful Christians throughout history. 
So we don't want to press the details of this parable too far. But there are some big truths for, for you to take away. One, hell is real. Eternal judgment is real. Just as heaven is real. Eternal paradise and eternal comfort, eternal joy and Jesus' side are real. Second, there is no such thing as salvation after death. There is no such thing as atonement for sin after death. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. After death, a gulf, a wall, a barrier, a separation exists between the righteous and the unrighteous, and it cannot be crossed. And third, I think the closest to Jesus' message for us this morning is that your life on earth matters for eternity. I mean, that's really the main point of the first part of this parable. It's not your good works that save you. You're only saved by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But your good works are the evidence of whether or not you love God. Do you love God or do you love money? The evidence is how you use your money, your good works. It's shown by how you steward what you've been given on earth. First John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. If anyone has this world's good and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, just like the rich man withheld compassion from Lazarus, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Well, friends, it is only those who love indeed who have God's love in them and therefore will inherit eternal life. Now look again at verses 27 through 31. After realizing that there was no hope for him, that his eternal destiny had been fixed, this rich man begged Abraham to send someone back to, to warn his brothers so they would not go to the place of eternal torment as well. But Abraham's reply to him was that those brothers already had everything they needed to turn to the Lord. They had God's word. They simply needed to listen and to obey. However, the rich man, he, he made a second appeal saying, surely they would repent and turn from their sins. Surely they would begin being generous to the poor and faithfully stewarding, stewarding what God had provided them. If God would just do something miraculous. He just sends someone back from the dead. Well, then they would repent and believe. But Abraham said that's simply not true. They will not believe the word of God. They will not believe the miracles of God either. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? We studied that over Easter. In response, the Pharisees simply hardened their hearts and sought to put Jesus to death. When Jesus was raised from the dead... Most still refused to believe. Church, do not be looking for miracles or to the supernatural to build your faith. Do not look to them as the foundation of your faith. Look to the word of God. John 5, 24, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word, and his word is found in scripture, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Where is the word that Jesus has revealed to us? In the Holy Scriptures. There are many ministries and churches that are built around and centered on supposedly miraculous signs. They go around claiming to perform miracle after miracle. They teach people to constantly be looking for miracles, to try to perform them, to be praying for them. They tell people the sign of their faith is whether they receive a miracle or they're able to perform miracles. Many, many of those ministries have little of any focus on the Word of God. Little teaching on the Word of God. Little encouragement for people to turn towards the Word of God. But church, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. That is the foundation of our faith. It is the Bible that reveals who God is, the holy and loving creator of the world. It reveals who we are, those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, who are under wrath and deserving of God's judgment. The Bible reveals that in his love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. 
It reveals that three days later he was raised from the dead so that all who repent and believe will have forgiveness and eternal life. My friends, the church is built on the word of God. Friends, the Christian life is to be built on the word of God. And if you have no interest in the word of God, you have no interest in hearing from Jesus. It is the spirit of God working through the word of God that establishes your faith. It is the spirit of God working through the word of God that strengthens and sustains your faith. Matthew 4, 4, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, we hear from God by hearing from his word. So friends, if you want to know how to be saved, look to the word of God. If you want to grow in Christian maturity, look to the word of God. Kids and teenagers, do not neglect the word of God. Turn to it now that your faith may be established for the future. Church, if you want to grow to be a more faithful steward of what the Lord has given you, look to the word of God. If you want to value what God values, turn to the word of God. If you want to know of the promises of God and the rewards that are laid up for the faithful, turn to the word of God. If you want to forsake the passing pleasures of sin, pray and turn to the word of God. If you want to be faithful to the end, if you want to persevere through the trials of life, if you want to hold on to faith when things are hard, pray and turn to the word of God. Friends, do not be short-sighted. Turn to the word of God that you might not live just for today, but live for eternity instead. Let's pray.